The scripture for today's sermon is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. The word of God speaks to us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word to us. Good morning. You know, scripture reading isn't a competition. But if it was, other scripture readers, Paul is coming for your spot. We just might have you do it every week, my friend. That was wonderful. Yeah, give it up for him. We are, uh, this Sunday, next Sunday, going to continue to be in uh, 1 Corinthians. Then we are going to enter into our Advent series, which I'm really excited about. Um, But here we are in in chapter 6. We're going to wrap up today and then enter into chapter 7 next week. And every, every week has been... um, to no surprise, it shouldn't be really formative and a blessing to me, and I, and I hear to our church as a whole, and I'm so thankful for this moment. I mean, the sovereignty of God is so evident. This book, with this people at this moment in time, um, God has been doing a deep work in all of us. Let's pray that he continue to do that today. I know he's going to, but we'll pray with one another for one another. I want to pray for you. You pray for me. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I just keep coming back to that true and, and profound reality that you made today. It's your day, and we are going to rejoice in it and be glad. Your mercies were new for us today. You're present with us here today. And your word, it never dims, it always shines, and it is always relevant. We don't need to make it relevant but we need to open our ears and our hearts and our eyes to see the truth and the beauty it has for us. It is a gift to us, Jesus, your gospel. And so as it relates to our bodies and our sexuality, we pray that we will be able to receive that good news today and see the truth of who you are and what it means for every aspect of our lives. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, amen. Roman Corinth, exactly like the modern West, was confused 
and had a broken view, a, a dark view. And this is the word, ironically, an incompatible view about sex. Sex, which at its essence is something about compatibility. In Genesis 2.24, God talking about the two becoming one. Ironically, they have two views that can't coexist, that can't come together and become one because they viewed sex as on one hand, everything, and on the other, nothing all at once. They had a view of sex that was too high, and at the same time, they had a view of sex that was too low. Their view of sex was too high because they viewed sex as a god. It, it, it ruled over them. And their view of sex was too low because they viewed sex at the same time as merely a bodily function like sneezing or going to the bathroom. Their view of sex included, as one commentator put it, no spirituality or mystery or transcendence. And our culture today views sex in that same incompatible way in the West. We view sex as everything, something that rules over us, something to be lived for, something that we can't imagine living without if we hope to experience a full life. Yet, in our culture, the predominant view is sex means nothing at the same time. Believing that sex is no big deal or asking why would it matter who I sleep with. See, the modern view of sex is one of casual sex, but the idea of casual sex is not a modern idea or notion. Casual sex is a very ancient concept. And in this passage, Paul is going to challenge this casual view of sex and this view of sex that, that is tempted to worship sex as something to rule over our lives. And he's saying it's not a god. And it's not casual, but it is serious. Sex is serious and sacred. And to followers of Jesus, we must take our bodies and what we do with our bodies seriously. And the, the church in Corinth needed to hear this from Paul because of the context of where they lived. We always need to remember that this letter was written to a specific church in a specific place in a real point in history. And in their city at this time, prostitution in the ancient world was way more culturally acceptable than it is today. All around the city of Corinth were temples to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And at those temples, regularly, there were dinner parties that people would come to. And after dinner was over, instead of bringing out dessert, they brought out prostitutes. A regular practice for a man on his way home after a hard day's work would be to visit one of these temples on the way home. Culturally in Rome, cities like Corinth, the view of husbands towards their wife in that culture was that the wife was there to bear heirs for his legacy, for, to, to secure political alliances or social alliances, to manage the household. But the relationship between a husband and wife culturally wasn't one of, of loving sexual intimacy. They had a broken view of sex. And to just put that in perspective, some historians will tell us that one out of 30 residents in the city of Corinth was involved in sex work. One out of 30. So visiting a prostitute was an everyday expected action for the men in that culture. And then the danger was that expectation 
was a reality in the church as well with some men in the church in the city of Corinth. And so this ancient church was wrestling with a danger of adopting the culture's view of their bodies and of sex. And why that's important and so helpful for us today is that is a danger that the modern church in the West, and, and specifically our congregation and here in Edmond, is, is a danger of doing too. Culture today holds up that sex outside of marriage is normal. Everyone has sex outside of marriage, and if you don't, you're the strange one. If a celebrity comes out and says they're a virgin who's waiting to have sex until marriage, that makes national news at this point in time. But what was held in this church was that many who claimed to be followers of Jesus were actually embracing sex's view of, or the culture's view of sex, and, and that's a danger for us as well. And to, like they did, explain away why that's okay and why adopting the culture's view and not God's view of sex is true wisdom and not foolishness. And Paul is going to say, hey, in love for you, I'm going to shine a light into your broken, dark view of your bodies and sexuality. So Paul begins to engage this church in Corinth regarding their view of their bodies and sex, and he's going to hold up three truths that form our view of sex as followers of Jesus. Three truths that help us see the the beauty of our bodies and the beauty of sex in light of the gospel. And the first is this. Our view of sex must be formed by the fact that we are free. The way that we view our bodies and and sex is formed as followers of Jesus by the fact that first we are free. Verse 12, Paul writes this to this church. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You notice in, in that passage of scripture, Paul is saying some things that are in quotes, right? And every culture has mottos or mantras. We have them here in Edmond. We, we make yard signs and we put them in our lawn, right? Or stand up for America. Or in this house, we believe, you know, fill in the blank. Or if you were to be walking around ancient Corinth, you might see a yard sign that says, in this house, we believe all things are lawful for me. And Paul is saying, hey, this is a view that the city holds that has been adopted by the church. And the meaning of this view, this motto, this mantra, means that I'm free from all restraint. And the men in the church in Corinth were using this this motto as a warped view of Christian freedom. And they were using this motto as a banner to march under to justify their wrongdoing, their wrong thinking, their wrong actions as it related to sex and their bodies. And see, we often view sex in wrong ways just like they did. We can view sex as a God, we worship at the altar of sex, believing sex is everything, as we mentioned. But we can also view sex wrongly, especially in the church, by viewing sex as something that's gross. Sex is embarrassing or it's spiked with shame. We view sex as unspiritual at best or at worst, like a necessary evil. And what Paul is doing here is he's holding up the, the truth of Scripture that God's view of sex that we see is, is sex is a good gift. 
It's a good gift given to be enjoyed in the context of covenantally committed marriage. Christianity has a reputation of being prudish or stuffy about sex, and nothing could be further from the truth. If you want some homework, go read Song of Solomon this week, and I bet you $5 you will blush at least one time, right? And that is God's word. The Bible is pro-sex. God is pro-sex. Sex was God's idea, his invention, So Paul is going to say here, sex is a good gift, but sex is also very, very powerful. It was designed to bring life and pleasure between a husband and a wife, but it can be warped to bring domination and darkness. Sex, Paul is going to say, has a far stronger hold on many of us than we realize. And just anecdotally, as one pastor in this church, there's usually two issues that that come up in the life of a believer, somebody that's a part of the church, and, and two issues where the doors of our life are often locked or they function as a line in the sand that, that people often say, hey, we can talk about anything, but we can't talk about this. This is off limits. And here in Edmond, it tends to be either finances and money or more often sex and sexuality. And this is evidence that, that many people, more people than we realize, are, are ruled by, dominated by sex, if they know it or not. And if, if a conversation about sexuality or a view of sex is off limits to, to spiritual direction, to God's direction, that's exhibit A, that, that that might be the very thing that actually is ruling over your life. If you're saying, God, I don't want to hear what you have to say about this, that leads us to, to have to realize that, hey, that thing has a stronger voice and a stronger hold on us than God himself. What we hold closest is most important to us. What we hold tightest often has the tightest hold on us. So Paul is bringing up this danger to this church and saying, sure, you have freedom. All things are lawful for you, but I will not be dominated by anything. Real freedom for the church in Corinth. Our church today looks like a life not dominated or ruled by sex as something that's a God in our life, but realizing it's a good gift from God to be used as he calls us to, to be received as he calls us to live it out. So that takes Paul to our, bringing us to our second point, another truth that forms our view of sex as followers of Jesus, Paul says, is secondly, our view of sex must be formed by the fact that our bodies matter. Understanding that to God, our bodies deeply matter, they have deep significance, must shape our view of a life living in God's will, a flourishing life. Our bodies matter must form our view of sex. Verse 13, Paul says this, again quoting, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Then Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, Paul is again quoting a a motto of the day in the city of Corinth that the church has embraced. And a lot of commentators are going to point out that you know, in ancient Greek, there was no such thing as quotations, right? And so that's, a, that's an English reality of grammar. But there, a lot of commentators are going to point out that you probably have misplaced quotes here in many of our translations. That the full quote is probably this, 
This is the mantra. One of the other mantras is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other is probably the full mantra, the full quote that this church is holding on to. And this motto is really a worldview that began, or at least was popularized by Plato. Living about 350 years before this moment in time, Plato taught that it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies because our soul is the only thing that really matters. So there's this divide between really spirituality and, and, and our physicality. And so, hey, do whatever you want with the body because the soul only matters before God. And the church in Corinth had bought into this. And as a result, they have this cheap and low view of what sex actually is. And so their thought process went like this. Hey, when I'm hungry, I eat. And when I want to have sex, I visit a prostitute. It's natural. It's a, it's a normal fulfilling of basic human needs. And it just struck me this week that if we just take a second to reflect on this belief, the real darkness and depravity that's evident. If the men in this church in Corinth live this way when they say, hey, I'm hungry, I can buy an apple, I can consume it, I can devour it for my own needs, no big deal. They had that same view of people who are made in the very image of God. If I want sex, I can just buy a temple prostitute, can consume them, can devour them, no big deal. This belief is just as food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, so sex is meant for the body and the body for sex. And we may think that ancients were more modern than we expect but in reality, like, I think modern life is just far more ancient than we realize. I grew up in Edmond with a young man named Kyle Harper. We were in Taekwondo together. And Kyle um, was at OU the same time I was. He was a year ahead of me. But then Kyle went on to study at Harvard. He got his doctorate in history from Harvard. And now he teaches at OU. He's brilliant. But he wrote this book called From Sin to Shame, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. We were not in many classes together. <laughs> but the point of his book is this. The greatest sexual revolution in history didn't happen in the 1960s in the West, where there was a, a promiscuity that was embraced and a sexual freedom where hindrances were thrown off. Dr. Harper says in a profound way in this book, in his 350 pages, he makes a profound argument that the greatest sexual revolution in history happened 2,000 years ago where the church of Jesus began to proclaim a sexual ethic into the empire of Rome, and it's revolutionized the very view of the entire world's view of sex, saying, hey, husbands, you need to be faithful in monogamy in a way that constrains your desires, where you're compelled to be faithful to your wife. And this liberated women as a result in ways that they had never experienced before. And, and the entire empire was transformed by this sexual revolution brought about by the church of Jesus Christ. Holding up that sex isn't a god, 
but sex is a gift from God for a husband and a wife to live out together for the glory of God. And this changed the world. It was one of the ways that the, the church shined in, in the darkness and absolute brightness of the Roman Empire. And they, the whole empire took note and said, that is different And Paul is a leader in this great sexual revolution, and he's proclaiming here, sex is for the body. Yes, it's a good thing. It's a great gift to be enjoyed, but the body is for far more than sex, and sex is for far more than just mere pleasure. Paul writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul is holding up the ultimate purpose of our bodies and what we do with them. There are great benefits to the gift of sex given by God. Our bodies and sex are for pleasure. Yes, case in point, Song of Solomon, like we mentioned. Our bodies and sex are gifts to serve and express love to our spouse. Yes, we can see that in Genesis 2. Our bodies and sex are designed to bring about life and conceive children. Yes, we can see that in Genesis 1, 28. In a really profound way, a commentator I read this week said, hey, as we give ourselves to our spouse in, in, in sexual intimacy, in a real way, we're giving ourselves to the possibility of the child that God may create in that union. Our bodies and sex are intended to be ex- expressions of lifelong commitments and an act of love held in covenant. We see that in Ephesians 5. Our bodies and sex are for comfort within marriage. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But Paul is saying here, ultimately, our bodies and sex are meant to glorify and serve God who gave his all in covenantal love and commitment for us. See, Paul points us to the gospel here. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And in verse 14, Paul says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. See, Paul's saying, hey, Jesus' good news of who he is, what he's done, that just shows us that that Plato's teaching on the the body and the soul is garbage, that, that our bodies matter and what we do with our bodies matter because we are in Christ and we have our bodies forever in Christ, that Jesus bodily rose from the dead and the promise is that we someday will, will receive new bodies and that there isn't this divide between our soul and our physicality that one day our bodies will be raised up just like God raised up Jesus' body. In verse 19, Paul says that our bodies are so important that the Spirit resides and makes his home in them. In verse 15 here, Paul says that our bodies are actually members of Christ. This is like a radical and revolutionary view of, of truth here in Scripture that is unlike any other religion in the entire world that God has chosen to be present in our bodies by his spirit, that he's made our bodies a part of who he is. It's mysterious, but it's deeply honoring, and it points to the truth of just how much God longs for us to be close to him. Stephen Um, who's a commentator that helped me immensely with this passage, he says, our bodies have tremendous value, and they cannot be treated casually because they matter eternally. Paul is pointing out that 
Sex isn't casual. It can't be casual because sex is serious and sex is sacred. And to hold up how sacred and serious sex is, Paul writes in verse 15 again, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So in verse 15 and 17, Paul's saying, hey, your, your bodies are members of Christ. Don't you know that? And everyone who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, that God has joined those in Christ to himself. And God is not making just random rules for us because he wants to be a killjoy and keep us from having fun. God is love. And his love for us is such that he wants to be joined with us and our body and our soul for our good forever. And so in verse 16, Paul says, to become one flesh, he's stating the fact that there is an inevitable uniting that happens when we have sex. Lewis Smedes, he's an ethicist and a theologian, he put it this way in his book, Sex for Christians. He says, there's no such thing as casual sex no matter how casual, uh, how casual we people are about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. He goes on to write, afterward, after having sex, afterward, t- the two people seldom feel the same way about each other again. They may love each other as never before, They may resent each other. They may only feel comfortable with each other. But after intercourse, the relationship is not what it was before. And that's because what we do with sex shapes what we are. What we do with our bodies, we do with ourselves. Sexual intercourse is a personal life-uniting act. And so the demand for continence or self-control is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life by anti-sexual saints. Listen to the last thing he says here. It is respect for reality as we know it. Simply holding up the obvious truth of how things really are. That when we make love, when we have sex, something serious always happens. So Paul tells us finally the last truth that we must hold to form our view of sex as followers of Jesus. Third, our view of sex must be formed by the fact that we are not our own. That's what this entire passage comes down to. Paul's message for us is we are not our own. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I don't think Paul is saying that sex is the only spiritual thing we do with our body. He is saying that there is nothing else that involves all of us, everything we are, quite like sex. When it comes to sex, we are all in. With sex, we are always giving ourselves away. So verse 19, he writes... 
Or do you not know that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. There's this epic love story in the Bible that we preached through many years ago in the book of Hosea. And the first three or four chapters are a narrative telling the story that that God goes to one of his prophets and he says, I want you to marry a girl. And she's going to break your heart. And this prophet marries this girl and he's faithful and he's loving and he's kind. And again and again, she, she spurs his affections and she's got this sexually broken past and she's got a fickle heart. And over and over again, she cheats on her loving husband. She leaves her loving husband. She's going down this path and she's on this path of dissension. She's going darker and darker and, and it leads her to this place where in her depravity, in her sexual brokenness, in her rejection of the love of her husband, that road ends in the deep dark place of her actually being so indebted that she's standing on an auction block and she's being auctioned off as a slave because of the debts in her life. And so she's, she's naked and she's exposed and she's in a room full of men who are evaluating and probing and devouring with their eyes and beginning to bid on her. And I imagine her eyes are downcast as she awaits her fate. But something amazing happens when the auction begins, something unexpected. She hears a familiar voice, strong and clear. She hears a man call out, five shekels. As the bidding goes up, 10 shekels. And she realizes that it it is this man who is her husband that she has run from and rejected despite his faithful love. And strong and clear, he calls out 15 shekels. And he wins the auction. And as she's processing what happens, the thought occurs to her, I think he's bought me to actually give me my comeuppance, to actually bring about revenge. All the ways that I've hurt him, all the ways I've rejected him, that, that he has paid this debt for me so he can punish me for all the ways that I've hurt him. And so this husband approaches his wife. And I imagine she raises her eyes to meet his gaze. And what she sees in his face is not a desire to bring about revenge, but she sees plainly loving kindness. She sees a smile on his face. And his message to her is this. You belong with me. And I love you. I, I am yours. Come home with me. This is like, you know, Nicholas Sparks has nothing on this love story, right? But why this this story is so significant is because it's just an echo of the great love story of God and the church. Right? Even though we had a sinful past, even though we have fickle hearts, even though we rejected the love of God again and again, Christ didn't just bid for us for our freedom. He laid down his very life so that we wouldn't have to live in slavery, but we, as the church, could be his bride, free, love. Jesus' word to us is, hey, you belong with me. 
I'm yours. Come home. We're met with his kindness. And so Paul says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And for those in Christ, what should resound in our heart is, thank God we're not our own. The one who created us, the one who loves us, the one who paid the price for us, we belong to him. And that means that our bodies are not ours to do with what we please, that we belong to our king, that collectively as the bride of Christ, as the church, we belong to our savior, our king, our husband. And that's good news because he knows what's best for us. He leads us into true life that's abundant and flourishing. And Paul's just holding up the truth that the great lie at the heart of all sexual immorality in the life of the Christian is the belief that we are our own. And if I'm my own, I get to decide what I do with my body. I get to decide how I spend my time. I get to decide who I sleep with. But if we are not our own, which we're not. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't redeem ourselves. God alone has done that. And we are bought by the unimaginable precious price of the life of Christ. We stand under the shadow of the cross. We stand under the light of the resurrection. And so we look to our king and with our bodies, with our sexuality, with our whole lives, and, and we ask, hey, what should we do, king? And his message is flee sexual immorality. I was poking around in this book this week about this man. I believe his name is Lopez Lemong. And he was a, a kidnapped child in Africa. And as a young boy, he was taken. And he was by a, a group. They were attempting to just like brainwash him and make him into a child soldier. And he escaped at a young age and he ran for three days with two friends. He ran for three days until he found safety in Kenya. And then he went on. That was his first experience with sprinting like that, long distance running. And he went on to be one of the most successful runners in history. Became a U.S. citizen, ran in the Olympics, and it was interesting to read that book in his view of running. Even though his original experience with running was one of running away from slavery, you think then that, that running and fleeing would be something that he you know, associated with fear. And yet he says, I feel no joy like I feel joy when I run. And when God says through Paul, hey, flee sexual immorality, it's not just a call to, to flee slavery, but it is that call to experience the joy of we're not just running from sexual immorality, we're running to the loving, loving arms of a kind Savior. That it's a sprint for freedom, it's a sprint in joy, it's a sprint empowered by the love of our God. So what does this mean for us? There was this like group thread going on yesterday where some of my friends were sending pictures of their first fire of the season. <laughs> and it just reminded me of that helpful illustration that I've heard that, that that's a great picture of 
how we view sex if we're Christians. That it's like fire. And if it's in its right place, like a fireplace, it can bring life and comfort and joy and give warmth. But out of its right place, it can be destructive. It can burn down a house. So God's heart for us in this passage is to, to flee sexual immorality it means it's serious for us this morning. That we don't take sexual sin lightly. It means that we need to help one another do this. That if we're in discipleship groups in our community group and we're not talking regularly about how we're fleeing sexual immorality, we might not be walking in discipleship. So we can flee sexual immorality today by even right now praying to our Father. There are things that we know are encumbering us, ways that we're falling short. And the reality is that we have a, a king who loves us that's calling us to run in joy to him this morning. Well, friends up here that would love to pray with us, we can receive God's help in God's grace. And also an expectation and, and a real assurance I believe we have this morning is that some of us here are just feeling a lot of shame and hurt and wounding from ways that sexual sin has hurt us. We've been betrayed or abused. And so there's not just forgiveness for some of us here this morning, but there's also healing and restoration and peace. So maybe our prayer this morning is that we need to speak to the Father and ask the Spirit or connect with a friend or a leader and just say, hey, I've been sinned against as it relates to sexuality and I want to come and, and pray and receive hope and healing to know that there is a, a, a God who sees me and loves me and is with me. God's mercy and love through Christ means that there's healing for us in Jesus today. There's also grace for us who are struggling with sexual sin today. So let's respond in faith. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we remember the true and powerful words of your son Jesus when he looked at his disciples in the eye and he said, nothing is impossible for God. And some of us this morning might be carrying in the weight of guilt and shame because we've been struggling with sexual sin for decade upon decade upon decade. And what is true for us this morning is, is nothing is impossible for God. That none of us have sinned in any way that is outside of the reach of the grace of God. And for us this morning who might be carrying wounds because of ways we've been sinned against, nothing is impossible for you, God, and there's no cut that you cannot mend and heal. There's no pain that you can't meet us in. And so we ask in faith in this moment for, for repentance for those of us that need to, that we would flee sexual immorality, that enjoy, we would run from a sin that wants to hinder and enslave and run to you, Jesus, who wants to receive and give mercy and grace. And for those that have wounds that, that hurt so deeply, that Spirit of God, you would be close and meet and heal. 
pray this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said,